Thank you all for coming. <laughs> I'm Lior, and uh, together with uh, Christine Baker over there, we are coordinating the Middle East Lecture Series at the Department of History with uh, the support, the large support of the Center for Middle Eastern Studies. And I'm privileged to introduce tonight uh, the, our speaker, Professor James Galvin. Uh, Professor Galvin uh, got his BA and Master's from Columbia University and his PhD from Harvard. He, had, he has taught at uh, Boston College and uh, Boston University, uh, MIT and College. Harvard. College, all right. <laughs> and currently is a UCLA professor. Uh, he has published many books, many articles uh, about nationalism in the Middle East. His most uh, known probably is uh, uh, Divided Loyalties. And his new book that is sup supposed to uh, be out tomorrow is uh, The Arab Upsprings, uh, Uprisings, sorry, <laughs> what everyone needs to know. Um, we want to, to thank our uh, co-sponsors for this event, the Center for Middle Eastern Studies, the Department of History, and the Institute for Historical Stand Studies. Thank you very much, Professor Gelbin. Thank you. Um, I want to thank Lior and Christine, Professor Agai, and the Center for Middle East Studies. Can you hear me in the back? Okay. Okay. Uh, just two things. Number one, it's great to be back in Texas and not in Houston. Uh, and number two, uh, I have not timed out this talk. It's brand new for you people, which means I might be, you might be out of here in 25 minutes or you might be out of here in two days. So I'm not really sure. A little over a year ago, the world's most famous street vendor, Mohamed Bouazizi, set himself on fire in front of a local government building in Sidi Bouzid, which is a small town in central Tunisia with approximately 30% unemployment rate. Earlier in the day, his wares had been confiscated and he had been humiliated by a police officer. The self-immolation touched off protests that reached Tunisia's capital uh, a couple of days later. Protesters brought with them a number of demands. Poor li living conditions, food inflation, corruption, unemployment, lack of freedoms, and lack of government uh, responsiveness. With the support of the Tunisian Federation of Labor, the protests gained momentum. At first, the president of Tunisia, Ben Ali, who had ruled for a quarter of a century, tried to pacify this, these protesters. In a pattern that would be repeated throughout the Middle East in the upcoming months, he promised 300,000 new jobs, new parliamentary elections, and a quote-unquote national dialogue. This did little to mollify the protesters. On the 14th of January, the military and political leaders of Tunisia had enough. And with the army surrounding the presidential palace, Ben Ali resigned and appointed his prime minister to head a caretaker government. Elections for parliament were held in October with a 90% turnout. The parliament's main order of business is to draft a new constitution. 
About a week and a half after Ben Ali fled, young people, many of whom belonged to something called the April 6th movement, began their occupation of Tahrir Square in Cairo. Now, we've all focused on Tahrir Square, but, uh, and it was to become the s- central symbolic area of the Egyptian protests. But actually, the protests of the 25th and then the 28th of January uh, took place throughout Egypt. The April 6th movement got its name from a date in 2008 when young people using Facebook called for a general strike to support striking workers at a state-run textile factory. The general strike never happened, giving the lie to the miraculous powers that are now ascribed to Facebook and social media. The security forces and goons for hire failed to dislodge the protesters from Tahrir Square, and the army announced that it was not going to fire on them. Strikes and anti-government demonstrations spread throughout Egypt. On the 11th of February, the army took matters into its own hands, deposed President Mubarak, and established a new government under the Supreme Military Council. This phase of the Egyptian revolution was over in a mere 18 days. The uprisings in Tunisia and Egypt created a template a false template, as it turned out, through which we view the success or failure of other uprisings that have taken place in the Arab world. There are three aspects of the Tunisian-Egyptian template. First, in the public imagination, both uprisings were largely peaceful, although that peacefulness has been largely exaggerated. Secondly, both brought down autocrats when the People's Army refused to shoot at protesters. And third, both got rid of autocrats in a matter of weeks. But we, shouldn't look at thi- uh, but we shouldn't look at things elsewhere through the lens of the Tunisian and Egyptian uprisings, no matter what inspiration protesters derive from the Tunisian and Egyptian protesters. After Egypt, ongoing protests in Algeria and Yemen took a new turn as young people adopted Egyptian-style uh, protest movements. In both places, protested had very, protests had very un-Tunisian, un-Egyptian results. In Bahrain, protests modeled on, the Egyptian, um, on Egypt led to an invasion by Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates and police uh, and uh, uh, fierce repression. In Jordan, Saudi Arabia, and Morocco, kings who had presented themselves as reformers now faced demands for constitutional monarchies, not for the end of the regime, as had taken place in Tunisia and Egypt. A day of rage was held in Libya after the arrest of a prominent human rights lawyer. He represented families of 1,200 disappeared political prisoners who were murdered in cold blood one single incident in 1996. Libya soon descended into a six-month civil war. After months of predictions that it couldn't happen in Syria, it did. In March of 2011, Syrian security services arrested 10 school children under the age of 14 in the provincial city of Dara. Their crime, writing the words, down with the Nizam, down with the regime, on graffiti on walls. When their parents went onto the streets to protest, security services fired, killing several. The next day, 20,000 residents of Dara took to the streets. The Syrian bloodbath, which is getting bloodier by the week, had begun. 
These were the main sites of protests. There were others as well, less publicized. Now, there are two common metaphors that are used to describe what has been happening in the Arab world since December. The first and most common metaphor is Arab Spring. I personally find this term hard to swallow for three reasons. First, only one of the uprisings, the Syrian uprising, actually broke out in a month that is in the springtime, although it actually broke out before the onset of spring. The others began in the dead of winter, which is a season that's hardly appropriate for an uplifting title. Second, springtime is commonly associated with renewal and joy. The jury is still out with all the uprisings, and some, Syria being the most outstanding example, have turned pretty sour. Finally, the term Arab Spring has already been used. Conservative commentators used the phrase in 2005 to refer to events in the Arab world that occurred in the wake of the American invasion of Iraq in 2003 and the announcement of George W. Bush's freedom agenda in 2005. Supposedly, the two events led to elections in Iraq, the Cedar Revolution in Lebanon, municipal elections in Saudi Arabia, women's suffrage in Kuwait, and a pledge by Hosni Mubarak that the next presidential elections in Egypt would be the cleanest in Egyptian history. Unfortunately, some of these events fizzled, while others proved unreproducible. The fulfillment, fulfillment of the promise of that Arab Spring proved elusive. The second metaphor that's been used to describe what's going on in the Arab world is wave. There are pluses and minuses to viewing the uprisings as part of a wave. On the plus side, there's no denying that later Arab uprisings borrowed techniques of mobilization and symbols from earlier uh, protests. Town squares that became the sites of protests throughout the Arab world were renamed Tahrir Square after the site of the Egyptian, uh, the Cairo protests. Every uprising had its day of rage or day of steadfastness, again from the Egyptian model. Then there is the highly touted use of social networking for the purpose of mobilization and the common demands for human uh, democratic rights and social justice. Now, that's on the plus side of, you, of looking at this as a wave. But there are things on the downside as well. First of all, most significant, is that it makes it seem that the spread of the uprisings from state to state was inevitable, like a wave splashing on a beach. It thus obscures the fact that the uprising spread as a result of tens of thousands of individual decisions by, made by participants who chose on a daily basis to face the full repressive power of their states. In addition, the wave metaphor obscures the fact that goals and styles of the uprisings have varied widely from country to country. As I said, the goal of some uprisings has been the complete overthrow of the regime. The goal of others has been the reform of the regime. There have been times when protests were predominantly peaceful and times when they took a violent turn. In Syria, actually, it is currently both. While I think the term Arab Spring is an abomination, I think that the wave metaphor might be salvaged if we remain aware that what is taking place in the Arab world is both, has both transnational elements and national elements. The transnational elements are found mainly in terms of inputs, the national element in terms of outputs. What do I mean by this? 
First, transnational inputs. Over the course of the past half century, all Arab states came to share similar characteristics. And over the course of the past two decades, all Arab states have faced similar shocks that made them vulnerable to uprisings. On the one hand, uh, on the other hand, there is local variation in national histories, in state structures, and state capabilities in the Arab world. This had opened up possibilities for each uprising and foreclosed other options for each uprising. The template I mentioned for the Tunisian and Egyptian uprisings, for example, peacefulness, short duration, ending in a military intervention, could not have taken place in Libya or Syria, for that matter. In a few minutes, I'll describe the number of templates, clusters of uprisings, that have occurred in states that share more in terms of history, structures, and capabilities with one another than they share with the rest of the states in the region. First, however, let's take a look at the transnational factors that made all states in the Arab world vulnerable to uprisings. There are four of them. First, over the course of the past several decades, the United States and international banking institutions have imposed neoliberal economic policies throughout the region. Neoliberal economic policies shredded the post-World War II ruling bargain that had united governments with their populations throughout the Arab world. Let me explain. Before the 1980s, states in the Arab world had played an, uh, an uncontested role in their national economies in an effort to force march economic development. They also provided a wide array of social benefits for their populations, including employment guarantees, health care, and education. Furthermore, consumer goods like food and petroleum products were subsidized by the state. In return, the states expected obedience. Overall, the ruling bargain that united states with their populations might be summarized in three words. Benefits for compliance. Neoliberal economic policies were first introduced into the region in the late 1970s. Then they were sharpened over the course of the past two decades. The policies were fairly consistent across the board. Cuts and targeting of subsidies, privatization of government-owned assets, lowering of tariffs, end of currency controls, and the like. Neoliberalism thus violated the norms of the ruling bargain. Populations throughout the Arab world have found two aspects of neoliberalism to be particularly repellent. First, there's the fraying of the social safety net and threats to middle-class welfare, particularly in the form of cuts to across-the-board subsidies for food and fuel. At the recommendations of the International Monetary Fund, those across-the-board subsidies were replaced by subsidies that were targeted to the very poor, absolute poverty, as it's called. The second aspect of neoliberalism, neoliberalism that populations found abhorrent was the sell-off of publicly-owned companies. For many, privatizations uh, threatened state employment uh, guarantees. Furthermore, privatization did not lead to capitalism, but rather to crony capitalism, as regime loyalists took advantage of their access to the powerful. It also widened the gulf between rich and poor, although it would probably surprise uh, everybody but the Occupy Wall Street people that the gulf in the Arab world still hasn't come close to the gulf in the United States. 
The worst of the crony capitalists, Ahmed Ez in Egypt, Remy Makhlouf in Syria, anyone, anyone named Trabelsi in Tunisia, thus came to symbolize systematic corruption in the buildup to the uprisings. The second factor that has made regimes in the Arab world vulnerable is demography. Approximately 60% of the population in the Arab world is under the age of 30. Even more telling is the percentage of youths between the ages of 15 and 29, which are the years during which youths enter the job market and the marriage market. Youths between the ages of 15 and 29 make up 29% of the population of Tunisia, 30% of the population of Egypt, 32% of the population of Algeria, and 34% of the population of Libya. They also make up the bulk of the unemployed. For example, in Egypt, they make up 90% of the unemployed. Demography is, of course, not destiny. And frustrations about job or life prospects do not necessarily translate themselves into rebellion. And youth was hardly the only segment of the Arab population that mobilized during the uprisings. In Tunisia and Egypt, labor played a very important role in the uprisings. In Libya and Syria, it was actually parents who were protesting the way the state had dealt with their children who sparked the protests. Nevertheless, by 2010, there was a cohort of youth throughout the Arab world with a significant set of grievances. Under the proper circumstances, this cohort was available to be mobilized for oppositional politics. The third factor that made regimes in the Arab world vulnerable has to do with the recent shock to the international food supply chain. The Arab Middle East is more dependent on aggregate food imports than any other region in the entire world. Egypt alone is the world's largest food importer. Since mid-2010, the world price of wheat has more than doubled spiking in January of this year, around the times that the uh, uprisings in most of the Arab world began going, going, getting underway. Economists attribute this to a number of factors. There's been speculation in grain, uh, there's been drought, particularly in the Soviet Union, more acreage in the United States, Canada, and Brazil that has been devoted to the growing of corn for biofuel, etc. But besides its dependence on food imports, there are two reasons why skyrocketing food prices are a particular burden in the Arab world. First, the portion of household spending that goes to pay for food in the Arab world ranges as high as 63% in Morocco. Compare that to the average percentage of household spending that goes for paying for food in the United States, about 7%, and that includes eating as entertainment, that is, dining out. The second reason uh, the damage caused by skyrocketing food prices in the Arab world is particularly punishing um, is neoliberalism. As a result of pressure from the United States and the International Monetary Fund, governments have been constrained from intervening in markets to fix prices. In addition, governments have abandoned across the board subsidies for food goods. The final factor that have made regimes in the region vulnerable to uprisings uh, is their brittleness. Look at it this way. The years between the onset of the economic crisis of 2008 and the beginning of the Tunisian rebellion have not been good for governments throughout the world. Those governments found themselves caught between bankers and economists who were demanding that they impose austerity on their populations, on the one hand, 
and populations fearing the end of the welfare state that they had come to know and love. Governments fell in the United Kingdom, Greece, Ireland, Portugal, Spain, Iceland, and most recently in Italy, among other countries. Although I got to tell you, among all the leaders, I'm going to miss Berlusconi the most. <laughs> Governments have been challenged in uh, France, and we'll see tomorrow in the United States. Throughout it all, not one government was overthrown, however, nor were political institutions uprooted. Blame fell on politicians and parties and the policies that those politicians and parties pushed. In the Arab world, popular representatives cannot be turned out because there are no popular representatives. This is why populations throughout the region have taken to the streets as their first option. This is also why the most common slogan during the uprising was down with the nizam, down with the regime. There's another word in Arabic, hukuma, which means government. That was not the slogan, it's down with the regime. The entire thing has got to go, not this party, not this politician, but the entire structure. These four factors then made all regimes throughout the Arab world vulnerable to the sort of street protests that we have witnessed over the past year. The four factors, however, did not cause the uprisings. To attribute the uprisings to those factors or to any other factors overlooks the key variable, the human element, that determines whether an uprising is or is not going to take place. Nevertheless, since December of 2010, protests or uprisings of one sort or another have broken out in all but five of the 22 members of the Arab League. One of those five, by the way, is Somalia, so we really can't tell. Once uprisings began to break out in the region, they took on a number of forms. Once again, those forms correspond to the unique history, the structure, and the capability of each of the states in which they have broken out. In the main, the uprisings that have broken out so far might be placed into four clusters. The first cluster contains Tunisia and Egypt, where militaries stepped in to depose autocrats. It is commonplace for observers to highlight the differences between Tunisia and Egypt. Tunisia is tinier in terms of both population and size. It's relatively wealthier, it's far more urbanized, and it's more cosmopolitan than its neighbor to the east. Yet there's one thing that Tunisia and Egypt hold in common that's unique in the Arab world. Both Tunisia and Egypt have long, history, uh, long histories as autonomous, developmentally-oriented states. Beginning in the 19th century, both experienced over two centuries of continuous state-building. As a result, there were functioning institutions, autonomous from the government's executive branch, in both Tunisia and in Egypt. Most important, in both, there was a functioning military, which could step in under the proper circumstances. During the uprising, militaries in both states stepped in to preserve their privileges and essential parts of the Nizam. All they had to do was to ensure that the most provocative symbol of the regimes, Ben Ali in Tunisia and the Trabelsi clan in Tunisia and Mubarak in Egypt, were out of the way. In other words, in both Tunisia and in Egypt, the uprisings were broken off by militaries. 
And here let me underscore a difference in Tunisia and in Egypt that has affected the trajectory of uh, the uprisings in each. The Tunisia was founded by a lawyer, um, and uh, basically who was very, very suspicious of the army. The Tunisian army was uh, kept smallest in the Arab world, and that continued under his successor, both of whom were extraordinarily paranoid about the army's ability to overthrow them. Uh, the Egyptian uh, leadership, on the other hand, came from the military. The Egyptian military is the largest in the Arab world with extensive economic holdings. It's estimated by the IMF that the Egyptian military controls approximately 50% of manufacturing in Egypt. Okay. The Tunisian military went back to the barracks under popular pressure. The Egyptian military has yet to do so. The second cluster of states undergoing uprisings includes Yemen and Libya, where regimes fragmented. In contrast to Tunisia and Egypt, both Yemen and Libya are poster children for what political scientists call weak states. Neither Yemen nor Libya have strong institutions or have inspired a strong national sentiment. In part, this is a result of geography. Neither country has terrain, which makes it easy to govern. In part, this has to do with history. Both countries are relatively recent creations, artificially constructed from disparate elements. North and south, in the case of Yemen, they obviously weren't looking at a map because it's really east and west. North and south, in the case of Yemen, three former colonies of Egypt, in the case of Libya. And in part, this has to do with the ruling styles of their leaders. Both Ali Abdullah Saleh of Yemen and Muammar Gaddafi of Libya avoided establishing strong institutions and instead ensured a, uh, a personalized rule. Think about Gaddafi's Green Book, for example. As a result, once uprisings in Yemen and Libya began, what institutions that did exist splintered? It is also for this reason that the uprisings necessarily became violent and drawn out. Unlike in Tunisia and Egypt, there was no unified army that could intervene, declare its commitment to nonviolence, and to keep regime loyalists and regime opponents separate. However, because institutions in both Yemen and Libya were weak and, unlikely to, and, and uh, unlikely to survive the overthrow of the regime, it is in these two countries that a better opportunity for revolutionary change exists than in Tunisia and in Egypt. We've already witnessed the beginning of that revolutionary change in Libya. The third cluster of states includes Algeria, Syria, and Bahrain where regimes maintain their cohesion against the uprisings. Some might even say where regimes had to maintain their cohesions in the face of uprising. First off, let me acknowledge the differences between uprisings in the three places. The Algerian uprising never gained traction. It was, uh, took place in December, January of last year. We don't hear about it very much. It pretty much was put down very, very quickly by mid-February. The Algerian um, uh, uprising, therefore, never really gained traction. The Bahraini uprising was put down with the help of a Saudi invasion uh, along with uh, UAE policemen. 
And the Syrian uprising has morphed into an incredibly tragic and violent affair. Yet the three states do have something important in common. Unlike in Tunisia and Egypt, where one part of the regime turns against another part of the regime, and unlike in Yemen and Libya, where the regime splintered, there is little likelihood for either to occur in these three countries. There are three reasons for regime cohesion. Take Algeria. Algeria was France until 1962. It was not French until 1962. It was literally France until 1962. The creation of the regime and the creation of the nation occurred simultaneously. But the state-regime divide is more distinction without difference. The state apparatus of Algeria is both of and coextensive with the ruling National Liberation Front, the FLN. While the FLN itself, like God Almighty, consists of three parts. The army, which has been the kingmaker. The president and the political leadership, which uh, are those who have been anointed by the uh, military. And the party, the FLN's link to the public. So that's Algeria. In Syria and Bahrain, the story is a bit different. In both Syria and Bahrain, regimes were effectively coup-proofed uh, by, among other things, exploiting ties of sect and kinship to build a cohesive ruling group. The core, core of the ruling group in each is made up of minority communities. In Syria, it is Alawites, a heterodox uh, branch of Shiism. And in um, Sunnis, it's, in Bahrain, it's made up of Sunnis. Um, Alawis in Syria make up maybe as much as 12-13% of the population. Sunnis in Bahrain make up about 25% of the population. The Bahraini regime has gone so far as to adopt a policy of what it calls political naturalization. That is, importing Sunnis from the Arab world to fill out spaces in the regime, particularly in the military and security services. Regime cohesion, however, cohesion by minority regimes, came at a high price. In both places, regime violence directed at majority communities increasingly turned what had been an intersectarian uprising into sectar an sectarian uprising. The early assertions of Bashar al-Assad, the president of Syria, and King Hamad of Bahrain that their opponents were sectarian and violent proved to be a self-fulfilling prophecy. Once again, regime cohesion means that uprisings in Algeria, Syria, and Bahrain will either be crushed or, like in, say, uh, Libya but not Egypt, result in true revolutionary change. The final cluster of states that have experienced uprisings consists of the seven remaining monarchies. And here the word uprisings has to be tempered, I think, a little bit. With the exception of the uprising in Bahrain, protests in Arab monarchies share two important characteristics that set them apart from uprisings elsewhere. They have been more limited in scope, number one. And secondly, they have demanded reform of the system, not the complete overthrow of the system. Now, it's not altogether clear why this should be the case, or for that matter, whether it will actually stay the case. 
According to political scientist Jack Goldstone, writing in Foreign Affairs, the reason why is, uh, the, the demand is for reform and not for revolution is that monarchies have an ability uh, that presidents, even presidents for life, don't have. They can retain executive power, he says, while ceding legislative power to an elected assembly and a prime minister. As a result, the assembly and prime minister, not the monarchs, become the focal point of popular anger. Now, Goldstone's argument has made quite a splash in the policymaking community, which is particularly happy to see that Saudi Arabian regime is not going to get overthrown. I, I don't find it convincing at all. His model fits closely with Jordan and Kuwait, which have operating parliaments. But it doesn't fit at all with Saudi Arabia, which is pretty much a wholly owned subsidiary of the House of Saud. And there is always that exceptional case of the monarchy that actually did explode, which is Bahrain. Now, it's entirely possible that in the future we might subdivide protests in monarchies into a number of categories. Oil rich versus oil poor, which means Morocco and Jordan on the one hand and everybody else on the other. Those where members of minority communities rule, and those where members of majority communities rule. Those where the extended family is in control, and those where control has been ceded to close allies. And those where non-citizens make up a higher percentage of the inhabitants than citizens. One of the reasons, of course, that uh, you know, uh, one of the few states that has not experienced the rebellion has been Qatar in which I believe uh, it's 85% uh, of the people living there are non-citizens. They know they can be deported at any point and other Pakistanis and Bangladeshis can be brought over in their place. Now this might be the case that we could subdivide it even further or not. Uprisings are extraordinary uh, occurrences and it's entirely possible that the monarchies will remain quiescent. Which leads me to my penultimate point, the four templates I have suggested are based on a small, temporally restricted model. As time goes on, events in uh, the states I have discussed, or perhaps in Iraq or in Palestine, may force us to reassess both the entire wave of uprisings or the categorization of uprisings. Let me just conclude by going through, at the end of my book, which I'm plugging mercilessly, at the end of my book, uh, the very last part is what, what can we draw? What conclusions can we draw from the uprising so far? Now, let's assume that we accept the uh, common narrative of the French Revolution. It began with the storm, storming of the Bastille in 1789 and ended with the coronation of Napoleon as emperor in 1799. That's been, you know, uh, uh, basically 10 years. We've just experienced our, our 13th month of uh, these uprisings. So it's really too early to determine. Plus, of course, we can always say that maybe the French Revolution began earlier with the Enlightenment or it ended later. What about 1945 when women got the right to vote for the first time in France, meaning that the true promise of liberty, equality, fraternity was finally met? These things are games that historians like to play with each other. A tiny fraction of time has passed since uh, Boazizi uh, uh, killed himself but I have a top 10 list of what we can learn so far, uh, starting from number one. Uprisings are extraordinary events, and being extraordinary events, they're impossible to predict. 
stands to reason. That which is possible to predict is an ordinary event. Number two, although the site of political action in the Arab world is the nation state, the imagined community that Arabs share with one another is remarkably robust. Number three, there is no evidence to demonstrate that social media played any more of a role in the current uprisings than the printing press and telegraph had played in earlier uprisings. It's just more efficient than um, messenger pigeons and megaphones. Number four, the strength or weakness of states and the relative independence of state institutions play a critical role in determining the course an uprising will take. Number five, the Arab world has not been impervious to norms of human rights that have emerged since the 1970s. Number six, neither culture nor religion has prevented the emergence of democratic aspirations in the Arab world. Number seven, the spontaneity, leaderlessness, diversity, and loose organizations that have marked the uprisings have been their greatest strength and also their greatest weakness. I feel like saying, oh, cricket, oh, grasshopper after that. <laughs> Number eight, when staging an uprising, having the army on your side may prove to be a mixed blessing. Number nine, since neoliberal policies have sparked widespread anger throughout the region, further neoliberal policies are unlikely to diffuse it. And number 10, whatever the rhetoric, the default position of American foreign policy remains expediency. Thank you. <laughs>